1: Welcome back to the Two Tongues podcast. Chris coming at you again with another solo episode. This one piggybacking off the Upanishads episode that I dropped uh, that I dropped last week. So the idea here, guys, is um, a continuation of a look at kind of major world religions from a mystic perspective. And I was just asking myself, sitting here, like, what am I? What am I trying to convince myself of here? What am I? What am I trying to convince the audience of having these conversations about these different major world religions from the lens of the mystic experience? Um, Am I trying to convince you that all major world religions come from uh, some sort of a mystic experience? Um, Am I just trying to say, well, isn't it a coincidence that, you know... Religious beliefs and practices kind of all have these similarities and those similarities are from the mystic experience um, or you see them in the mystic experience. I don't exactly know what I'm trying to convince you of here or myself of, uh, but I do think it's interesting that um, the religions that have made it to the present day, uh, that they do have those similarities and that they do come from, um, you know, characteristically mystic type of experiences. Um, the one that I did on Christianity was obviously maybe maybe the most controversial because of you know um, there being so much of that that's not widely accepted. Uh, the one about the Upanishads, um, again, that was the the most straightforward one. I mean, it's the most mystical religion, the most mystical interpretation of religion that I'm aware of. You know, just very obviously. This one, the one that we're going to talk about today. Is similar, it's Taoism. Taoism from, from China. Um it's super mystical, you guys. Um I read a lot of these quotes when I was doing the Upanishads episode. I read a lot of these quotes that uh came from the Taoist holy book. It's called the Tao De jing Uh it is spelled with a T, T A O. Um, so you know it's not it's it's not Tao, it's Tao with a D sound. Uh just so you know. Uh, anyway, this religion pops up in China um, kind of right—well, actually, I'll just take a step back here because this is an interesting time in the world. Um, people have called this this era where the Upanishads and the Tao Te Ching were written—they uh, call it the Axial Age axial age. And the reason is that you've got from basically 800 BC um, through kind of the first century AD, you've got a period of, you know, less than a thousand years where so many of these major world religions come from or change. A lot of these mystical prophets that started different religions uh, lived in that time period. And there's all sorts of questions as to why that is, and what was going on in the world that allowed this to happen? Why do we, why are we seeing it all over the world, not just in one in one one place? Um, just to give you an idea, the Upanishads I mentioned in the last episode, the last solo episode, were were written uh, between 800 and 400 BC. Um, the guy that is attributed uh, to ha- having, having written the Tao De Jing. His name is Lao Tzu. He lived between 600 and 500 B.C., something like that. He had a counterpart in China that you guys have probably heard of, Confucius. Um, Confucius lived between 550 and 480, approximately. But apart from that, you've got people like Socrates in Greece living around that same time period, 470 to 399. The Buddha, uh, somewhere between 500 and 300 B.C., and then Jesus, some, somewhere you know between four BC and his death, and you know maybe around thirty or so AD. So you got this period, um, you know, from let's say five hundred BC to uh, you know to um, the, the, the present era, where all of these people lived. And uh, I said before, and it's probably true with all of these, that some of the precursors of these religions go back farther some of the oral traditions, some of the stories that these religions kind of were founded on, they go back probably much earlier than that as well. But it's just interesting. You've got this small period of time where all these great religious people lived and all these new religions got founded and every single one of them, you might say with the exception of Confucius, every single one of them was mystical to some degree. Uh, Again, when I say mystical here, I'm talking about the types of religious intuitions that people get from the mystic experience, wherever, whatever method they get that from, whether it's, you know, meditation, you know, in the Asian religions, that's big, you know, the idea of meditation, yoga, uh, deep, you know, contemplation, monks in the, in the wilderness kind of thing. Um, but, uh, but, you know, but more than that, um this idea about uh, Taoism that we'll get into in particular... If you've heard, if you've not heard of that word before... Or if you don't know anything about the religion... You actually probably do know a little bit about the religion... Um, because you know about the yin and the yang... So we all, I think, are familiar with the image... I think uh, we could probably all take a pen and draw that thing right now... It would take us five seconds... The yin and the yang... That is a Taoist symbol... So you do know something about Taoism... So the idea here, if nobody's ever explained this to you about the yin and the yang, um, you guys know what it looks like. Circle, and it's partly broken up in, in different colors. White on one side, black on the other. In the white side, there's a little dot of black. In the black side, there's a little dot of white. And what that's supposed to represent is a, is a harmony between two opposing forces. Um, in China, they call that yin and yang, the black and the white, you might say. And... Um, and the fact that they exist in this circle together with a little bit of one and the other and a little bit of the other and the one, um, that's supposed to represent a harmony, that, the, the, that both of these forces of yin and yang exist together in this complete circle and that you can't have a complete circle without a little bit of the yin and a little bit of the yang, that together uh, the, you create a wholeness, you create a harmony, um, something like that. And the idea that there's a little bit of the yin and the yang and a little bit of the yang and the yin um, is, meant to, is meant to basically tell you that the yin can become yang and the yang can become yin kind of right from, from within itself and that if there's a change in one, that there must be a change in the other to restore harmony, that they will exist together as a whole. Um, and if you have one without the other, that you have a problem. Um, and there's all sorts of this sort of thing. Uh, feng shui comes to mind, you know, as far as the idea of harmony. So when you're when you're talking about Asian cultures, um, harmony is a big deal. And even with something like Feng shui, where where you're you're you know building your house in a certain direction with a certain shape, you're furnishing it a certain way, and it's done very intentional to uh, to harmonize everything with everything else. So this is a big deal, um, and it goes way 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 back, uh, kind of in. In China and then the you know the Asian uh, cultures you know and more generally, so the idea of yin and yang is something like uh, what Jordan Peterson would call uh, chaos and order. Um, so these are the two opposing forces that, um, taken together, um, they comprise all of all of existence. So everything that you can imagine is either going to fall under the category of chaos or order going to fall under the category of yin or yang something like that and together when you take those things together what you have is something something that's called the ouroboros and Kyle and I mentioned this in a prior episode but the ouroboros you guys have probably seen before it's just a symbol it's just a symbol of a snake eating its tail so it's a circle made up of this snake kind of swallowing its own tail and so that circle, like Carl Jung would say, represents the completion or the wholeness. It represents, um, you know, the, the matrix of reality, it, 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 whatever underpins all of this being. This is something that we can symbolize as uh, a snake eating its tail. Uh, again, that circle is the same circle you see in the yin and yang. Um, something like that. And so, you know, if you can imagine, the circle has no beginning and no end, so it represents something eternal. Um, because the snake is swallowing its own tail, it's sort of a different maybe a different spin on that where what makes this Ouroboros eternal is sort of something about the snake itself, you know it's not uh you know it's not given the gift of immortality or something supernaturally. it is itself eternal. it's the snake swallowing its own tail uh something like that. So this is the idea here between the yin and the yang and it gives you. Kind of a backdrop for talking about Taoism. This is the important the important symbol. Now, when uh, when Taoists talk about yin and yang, uh, or Jordan Peterson talks about chaos and order, you know we could talk about those very, very, very much along the same lines. Um, the uh, I, I would say, you know, in my language, that the chaos is non-being, and the Taoists will use that word, non-being. So we'll see some of that as we go through these these quotes that we'll read. Um, and, uh, and and yang represents order, or what I would call being. And so they have different words in the Tao Te Ching that they use to talk about yin and yang in that way. Um, they use the word tao, and I, I would basically suggest to you that the word tao is something like the word yin. Um, the Chinese would say that yin represents um, something like a receptive force, a passive force, a quiet force, something that's not acting. Um it's just being. It's not acting. And there's something important about that in the in the Taoist tradition. Uh it's called the um the yin is called the door of the mystic female and the root of heaven and earth. The door of the mystic female. So this has something to do with the um the, the you know the sacred feminine and masculine. So the feminine and masculine are going to be Categories like the yin and yang, like the chaos and the order, or the being and non-being that I talk about. So the, the so the the harmony between masculine and feminine is is the same symbol as the yin and the yang. Um, so the so the yin again is you can kind of think about that as the matrix of being, the chaos from which everything can emerge. Um, it's the undi- it's it's what I would call undifferentiated being. And then you've got yang, which is the masculine principle, it's the active principle, it's, it's, it's order. Um, so, y- so you might say that yin is the kind of the force, the creative force that brings things into being, that creates things. And yang are those things, the things that are created, something like that. And when we read through the Tao Te Ching, um, they're going to use the word tao uh, to represent something like yin, and they're going to use the word day um, which is again spelled with a T again, T E H, but it's, um, it's, it's going to be the, the other principle. So day is more of the yang, more of the order or the being the, the, you know, the, the differences, um, that the, that the Tao or the Yin is some sort of, uh, difficult to define, maybe impossible to understand, um, infinite creative source. And, uh, the yang or the day are going to be all of those things that come from the, the Tao that come from that matrix of being so you might think of that as the material world you and me and everything you experience alright so there's a lot of stuff that you can read if you're interested in Taoism uh, you can go to that sacredtext.com website I mentioned to you you can read the Tao De Ching there um, a lot, along with lots of other Taoist materials um, all that stuff is old uh, when I say old I mean it's it's not protected by copyrights anymore, so if you go back and you read it, you know, they're like 1800s translations or turn-of-the-century translations and things like that. Um, but I have another suggestion for you. If, if I get through this and this is something that sounds interesting to you, there were some books written in the 80s that I discovered when I was a teenager. Um, the first one is called The Tao of Pooh. Oh, yes, Pooh, like Winnie the Pooh. And you're damn right, that, that book is about Winnie the Pooh. Um, it's about Taoism, but it's about Winnie the Pooh, and the idea is, and it's it's pretty funny actually. Uh, there's illustrations in the book. The book is written like a Winnie the Pooh story, so you could read it to your toddler. It's written like that, um, and it's also fucking brilliant because what it does. This guy that wrote it, his name's Benjamin Hoff. I, I'm only guessing he's a, you know, uh, a white dude from the United States, but I don't know. Um, but what he's done is he's he's, he's Taken this Asian philosophy and religion, this Taoism, that's very hard to understand, especially when you don't come from that the Eastern world and and culture where you're familiar with their phrases and their you know their way of talking and and uh, their, their 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 culture more generally, if you're not aware of that, if you're not part of that, reading the Tao Te Ching is like. You gotta you gotta interpret it twice. You know, once you translate the Chinese to English, then you have to understand the context and the relation and uh, you know the phrases. And it's, it's like, boy, I mean, if you're not Chinese and if you're not from that that culture, it's really difficult to do. So what this Benjamin Hoff did is he was like, oh, all right, look, the whole thing about Taoism is that it's it's so simple. It's so simple. And so complicated at the same time that it's difficult to express. So why don't we why don't we talk about that using these characters from Winnie the Pooh? And he does an amazing job of that. So I don't know if it's go- if you read the Tao of Pooh, I don't think you're going to take away from it a whole lot of the mystical stuff that I'm going to talk about today. But you will get the gist of it. You will understand a lot more about the philosophy and. Uh, kind of the meaning behind the things. And I'm going to do my best to explain that to you, and I have a little help from from having read the the Tao of Pooh, you know, uh, way back when. Uh, but there's also a sequel to that book called The Day of Piglet, and uh, again, awesome book. Um, I'm sure you can pick them up cheap, um, and they're awesome. I would encourage you to take a look if you're interested. But I want to read for you the back cover of the Tao of Pooh. So the back cover of the Tao of Pooh is supposed to get you to, you know, Read, read the what the book's about, you know, pique your interest so you buy this book when you're standing in the bookstore. And it reads like this. While Eeyore frets, and Piglet hesitates, and Rabbit calculates, and Owl pontificates, Pooh just is. And that's a clue to the secret wisdom of the Taoists. So that's the sentence on the back of the book. And that's just so brilliant. It's so brilliant because... Because every character, and I didn't pick up on this, you know, jeez, I probably should have. Um, not only did I watch Winnie the Pooh growing up, but but my kids watch Winnie the Pooh. And, you know, the characters in Winnie the Pooh, they all represent a, a type of a, you might say a type of a personality, or you might say a um you know, a phase of, uh, of being that people go through as they're maturing or whatever. Um, or it might just be kind of a, you know, representation of the forces, the psychological forces in ourselves that are competing with one another. But to think about Eeyore, you guys know Eeyore, man. Eeyore he's always sad, always got, you know, nothing good to say, always depressed. We all have moments like that. We all, we all feel that way from, from time to time. So Eeyore frets. Piglet hesitates. He's very, he's very cautious, Piglet. You know, he, he's, he's always, he's always wanting to figure out what's going to happen before he takes action. He, he overanalyzes everything. So Piglet hesitates. Uh, Rabbit calculates. So not, not unlike, not unlike Piglet, but less fear. You know, Rabbit is, uh, is gonna, 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 calculate, you know, exactly what, uh, what he's, uh, he, I don't know if Piglet's a woman, I think maybe a woman or a, Shoot, I don't remember anymore. But anyway, he, uh, the, the rabbit's going to calculate everything out and, uh, and make their decisions very mathematically. And Al pontificates. Al's got all kinds of you know information. He's very smart, and, and he's got all sorts of suggestions about what to do and uh, how to do it and why. And the thing is, is, Al's wrong most of the time. But that doesn't stop him from pontificating. That doesn't stop him from preaching to everybody else that he knows better than, than, than they do. And Pooh doesn't do any of that. Pooh just is. He just he just exists. He's just being himself. You know, like your mom and dad always told you to be yourself. That's what Pooh's doing all the time. That's what he is. Um, so I think there's there's some truth in that, that uh, understanding all of those forces, the eeyores and the piglets and the rabbits and the owls that are existing within our psyches, that are controlling our behavior or, or whatever, Influencing our behavior, um, that if we can if we can get over those things, if we can conquer those things and be more like Winnie the fucking Pooh, then we'll have some idea about the secret wisdom of the Taoists. So that's what we're going to dig into today. Strap in. All right. One thing I want to tell you that I learned uh, that I think is interesting right off the bat: that Taoism it's called Taoism um, to the West. But to the people who are Taoists, that's not what they call themselves. They call themselves Xuanqiao. Now, I'm not Chinese. I probably pronounced that wrong. Um, I know there's a lot of tonal things in Chinese that I just can't do. Uh, Xuanqiao. And it means the mystic religion. So the Taoists, the actual observant Taoists in Asia, they believe themselves to be adherents to the mystic religion. What does that mean? Well, I told you what I believe mystic means. Uh, we saw some of the comparisons with the Upanishads, and I'll bring some of those up today. But I, I really enjoyed um, contrasting the Eastern religion when we did the Upanishads episode with my own cultural upbringing. So I like to I like to compare some of these things to Christianity. I don't I don't know why. I mean, maybe it, maybe it gives context to some of the Western audience that are that are listening. Maybe it maybe that. It bridges the gap And makes it easier To understand But I don't know man I just think it's interesting That there's That that Christianity lines up With these things At all In, in some way um, In another way I sort of expect That they will You know I think um, To the point I alluded to At the beginning That people who have Mystic experiences uh, That comes along With religious intuitions thing, Things that you cannot deny um, Anymore About the nature of reality And God and any religion that that is i want to say truthful but any religion that is based in that type of a, of a mystic experience that that type of experience um should necessarily have some similarities because the the experience the mystic experience has those similarities um so again just like the upanishads that we talked about last time with these deep deep mystical roots going way way back in time in india here we have a um, very similar situation, a religion that's called mystical by the people themselves that, that uh, follow it. And um, and I'll, I guess I'll just dig in, guys. Let's get started. To begin, I want to give you something that I thought was a biblical concordance. It was something that happens in the Tao Te that when you read it, I can't help but be reminded of the Bible, and you'll see what I mean as I start reading this to you. I'll read it through, and then I'll give you my commentary. And this is not particularly relevant, but I have a couple of examples here about how the Tao Te Ching and the Bible sort of have these common threads. So here we go. From the Tao Te Ching. Oh, by the way, the Tao Te Ching, just so, uh, just so you guys know, it's easy to read. So you can pick it up and read it like in a day, Easy. Um, all of the, it's, you kind of think of it like you're reading the Proverbs or something in the Bible that every, um, piece of it, uh, you know, they're almost like a poem you might say, but they stand by themselves. So you can read one verse and it's like a couple of paragraphs and that's the whole, that's the whole, you know, passage. Then you move on to the next one and it's its own passage and they're pretty easy to read, pretty short and you can get through them, uh, quickly. Uh, but that's not to say that you'll understand them quickly. It, it's it, They're the type of thing, as you'll see, that will make you think, and uh, you'll probably be less sure about what it means when after you've read it than, than, than before. Um, but I'm going to tell you what I think it means. All right, so here we go. Exalt not the wise, so that people shall not scheme and contend. Prize not rare objects, so that people shall not steal. Shut out from sight the things of desire, so that people's hearts shall not be disturbed. All right, so this is the third uh, verse from the Tao Te Ching. So what do you think about that? I mean, when I read that, two things come to my mind. The first thing is, well, it sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments. And the second thing is, it, it seems to provide a little bit more guidance than the Ten Commandments. So it's like, the Ten Commandments only a little bit more Helpful, you know, for lack of a better word. So let's do this again. Exalt not the wise, so that people shall not scheme and contend. Well, to me that sounds like thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Okay? So when it says don't exalt the wise, it's basically saying don't set apart somebody uh, for a particular characteristic that they have and hold them as higher than other people. Because if you do that, people will scheme and contend. People will feel slighted by that. And the Bible says, you know, don't covet anything that your neighbor has. So we're looking at something very similar. We're looking at from the biblical side of things, me looking at my neighbor across the street and seeing all the great things that they have, you know, his beautiful wife, his nice car, his his pretty house, his wonderful family, his whatever it is. Uh, maybe it's his, intel, his intellect, his wisdom. Whatever it is that I don't have, that I wish I did have, that makes me jealous. Um, what the Tao Te Ching is saying is get rid of the reasons why people are jealous. You know, Value everybody equally for, for what they bring into being, to for what they represent in the world. You know, there may be some of those people that in, at some point in time are more useful for you, to you than another, but they're equally valuable. So the Tao Te Ching is not telling you just to avoid being jealous. It's telling you how to avoid being jealous. It's to change your mind, change your culture, change the minds of the people around you so that you aren't... Um, so that you aren't wishing for the things that they have in a way that it, that deprives them of it, you know, that jealous, spiteful way. All right, the next one says, prize not rare objects so that people shall not steal. So in the Bible, we just get thou shalt not steal. Don't do it. But the Tao Te Ching is saying, don't prize rare objects, and if you do that, people won't steal. See what I mean? it's a little bit more helpful than, than the biblical story. It's giving you a, you know, I'm not saying that that's easy to achieve, but at least it's giving you a path to the virtue. And the last one says, shut out from sight things of desire so that people's hearts shall not be disturbed. So people's hearts being disturbed, remind me, you know, of something like thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, it's like look, looking at that, at that person who's not your spouse and desiring them. Um, that's a sure way of disturbing your heart it's a dis- sure way of disturbing the uh equilibrium in your in your life so the dao de jing says the same thing it just says shut those things out from sight so that so that you won't have those desires now i'm not saying that that's a great solution i don't I don't think it is a great solution i'm one of those people that uh like i told you guys before uh, that i used to be a very heavy dude most of my life very very fat guy um that uh, having like things in the house that I wanted to eat that I couldn't eat, uh, to me it was like I, I take all that stuff out of the fridge, and then I don't cheat on my diet. Let's say um, I'm, I may get what I want, I'm, I may have the result that I want, uh, but I didn't do it in a noble way. You know, it's like if that food was in the fridge and I didn't eat it anyway. Well, then then I'm you know then I have something to be proud of. Then I then I actually accomplished something. I was tested. And I made the right decision. Um, so, so to me, it's like that. It's like if you, you see a beautiful woman or something, you're supposed to see a beautiful woman. You're supposed to recognize that she's beautiful. And if, you're, and if there's some part of you that, that wants her and you're married and you shouldn't, the, the noble thing is to allow yourself to experience what you're experiencing and then tell yourself, no, no. You know, you you make the the value judgment. You put your foot down, and you and you do the right thing. You know, if you weren't able, I mean, if all of the beautiful women, like in a, a Saudi Arabia, let's say, all have masks over their head and you can't see their beauty, does that make you a noble person because you didn't lust after them? No. Kind of makes you a pussy. It kind of makes you. It kind of makes you. I don't, I don't want to get too angry here because there's anger seeping out for other reasons here but it's uh, you know wouldn't, don't you think you would be a more admirable person if you could if you could be exposed to beauty and even feel lustful feelings but but be greater than them? I think so. okay here's the next uh, quote that again corresponds to the Bible in an interesting way. Here goes, uh, this is the 42nd passage in the Tao Te Ching The violent man shall die a violent death Okay, Maybe not, not the most insightful passage in the world But doesn't it make you think of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth Or in the New Testament, in, in the book of Matthew All that live by the sword shall die by the sword Okay, yeah, I think so I think it lines up, I think that's what it's saying so They're They're saying similar things here so you've got a couple of concordances, something like the Ten Commandments showing up in the Tao Te Ching, something about the nature of violence and, you know, uh, reciprocating violence and that that sort of a thing, that's showing up uh, in the Tao Te Ching also. And there's another passage that doesn't concord with the Bible, but it does with my mystic experience. I, I found it kind of interesting. Um... So I don't know if you guys remember I and I can't recall what episode it came from but I was talking and maybe more than once about how the mystic experience has a element to it that is um what word do I want to use here absurd it's got this absurdity to it uh and it has to do with some certain parts of the experience it has to do with uh if you guys remember me telling you that the that the impression you get about the nature of God from the mystic experience is that um, is that it's sort of everything all together. It's it's the union of opposites. It's everything considered together, um, and that when you do that, when you take good and evil together, that you kind of cancel out the good and evil, and you're left with nothing. Or um, you know, hot and cold, and you put those together, and you're sort of left with nothing. That there's this very hard to understand um, part of the mystic experience that's like that. It's telling you something is absurd about it and that something about it being absurd is important. It's like it's not a negative thing that it's, uh, that it's absurd. It's, it's important that it's absurd. There's some importance about it not making sense that kind of cuts to the heart of the mystic experience and it has something to do with that. It's something to do with imagining God as both being and non-being or imagining uh, all of the universe, all of material reality and God to be one thing. It's like it's so difficult to even form an image of what that might be that it seems absurd, it seems silly, it doesn't make sense. Um, I actually had this um, experience one time where uh, where the in the mystic experience I had this phenomenon with my vision where it was almost like... Um, It was almost like shuddering, like, uh, you know, on and off. So it was like um, I could see a little bit and then it was black. I could see a little bit and then it was black. And it was like quickly flashing back and forth between the something and the nothing. And uh, this has to do, in my opinion, with this um, intuition about uh, the mystic experience and this connection to it being absurd is that it's, it's something like being conscious and being unconscious at the same time. Something like that, and what does that mean? You know, I don't know, but it, it's it's absurd. And this is what I'm getting at. So listen to this. It says, when the highest type of men hear the Tao, they try hard to live in accordance with it. When the lowest types hear the Tao, they break into loud laughter. If it were not laughed at, it would not be Tao. Wow! If it were not laughed at, it would not be Tao. So that, you know, to me, it, 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 it rings of that absurdity of the mystic experience, but it also rings of like what you expect to to hear from somebody that you're explaining this to, like somebody who's never had the mystic experience or any, any type of religious experience, let's say, and then you sit down and try to explain to them what you learned from it, that everything is one, um, you know, that, that that the material world is more of an illusion than we realize it is, um, that, uh, you know, that God and man are one thing in, in being, you know, ha- saying that with a straight face to somebody who has no idea what you're talking about. What would you expect to hear from that person other than laughter? You might hear something like, you might hear that sound. You might see rolling of eyes. Um, not likely, not likely somebody's going to take that seriously. Um, unless they've had that experience. So there's something something like that as well going on. All right, so that's just a little bit of a taste. So now we can get into it. I'm going to read to you some passages from the Tao Te Ching. Um, the copy I'm using is not is not the same one that you find on sacredtext.com. It's the Lin Yutang translation from 1948. I just happen to have that copy. Um, some of the translations are pretty different, but this is the one I used uh, and I like. So this translation comes from 1948, but obviously the Tao Te Ching was written, you know, 500 B.C. or some, something between five and 600 B.C. And I just want to kind of run through this with you, in, in the not in the order of these passages, and I've selected some, but I put them in a particular order that I think will help navigate this conversation. So the first bit is going to be talking about what Tao is, trying to understand what Tao is, Obviously, this religion is called Taoism. The book is called the Tao Te Ching. So Tao is important here. What, what in the Sam hell is it? What is Tao? So let's, let's try that. So here's the 25th verse of the Tao Te Ching. Before heaven and earth existed, there was something nebulous, silent, isolated, standing alone, changing not, eternally revolving without fail, worthy to be the mother of all things. I do not know its name and address it as Tao. Woo. okay. Um, so, I mean, there's an admission here. I do not know its name and address it as Tao. So there's a there's a there's an admission here that the person writing the Tao Dejing, the person who is explaining to you what the Tao is, has to kind of invent a name for it because there isn't one. And there's this feeling that even by even by giving it a name at all, you're falsifying it. You're reducing it to something that it's, that it's not. So even just calling Tao Tao is to, is to misunderstand what it is just by giving it a name. It's like we're already immediately we're off the track to understand what Tao is. So something like that. Um, and then, and then in the beginning here, it says, before the heaven and earth existed, there was something nebulous. This is the thing that they're calling Tao. So very important here that there was something that existed before existence. Um, This might remind you of Genesis. So I'll read this again. Before heaven and earth existed, there was something nebulous. Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was was without form and void. Well, that's interesting. So you've got, you know, before heaven and earth existed, there was something nebulous, and in the Bible, it's without form and void. Well, those those things mean the same thing. Nebulous is something that you can't you can't define exactly. It doesn't have a uh, you know precise um, boundary. It sort of bleeds into everything else. You can picture like a like a nebula, you know, a cloudy, foggy shape that kind of bleeds out into space without any particular form or boundaries or whatever, something that kind of exists and kind of doesn't exist. This is what's meant by nebulous. This is what's meant by something that exists without form and void. And then it goes on to say um, silent, isolated, standing alone, like there's nothing else but, but the Tao changing not, so it's eternal and changeless, just like the uh, Upanishad says it is, the changeless reality. It says eternally revolving without fail, which is interesting, you know, we know that the planets are revolving, and that the galaxies are revolving, and that's not something that the ancient Chinese knew uh, at this point in time, at least I don't think it is, Um, but here you see that, you see that in uh, in the passage, and then it says worthy to be the mother of all things, which uh, you know, it's pretty pretty obviously saying that the Tao, whatever that nebulous thing is that we don't know, that that is something worthy to be the mother of all things. It's it's the the thing from which being can come, not just being, but all possible things can come from from Tao. And then it ends by saying, I don't know its name, so I address it as Tao. Tao, by the way, it means way, the way. So Tao doesn't it's not exactly like a proper name. It's, it's, it means a way, like a way of being, something like that. It's a very, very different type of understanding than we usually use when we talk about God um, because we tend to think about God as embodied or something like that, but that's not the case with Tao. And there's one last bit to this that I want to read to you now. It says, man models himself after the earth. The earth models itself after heaven. Heaven models itself after Tao. Interesting. So here, the way I read this is something like the way I read a similar passage in the Upanishads. The passage says, "Whatever is here is there. Whatever is there is here." Likewise, that that comes from the Upanishads, and it reminds me of a phrase that you may have heard. Uh, and I mentioned before; it's I think it was popularized by one of the Da Vinci Code movies. Um, it and it says, "As above, so below." and this is this kind of medieval medieval phrase this kind of philosophical or occult phrase that has something to do with understanding the earth and heaven as the same or as, you know the supernatural and natural as the same somehow and and this dao de jing phrase uh, verse rather says man models himself after earth earth after heaven and heaven after dao and so the picture I'm getting here is something interesting, something like uh, what the Bible says when it says um, man was created in the image of God. That you've got uh, Tao, you've got the formless, nebulous matrix of being that uh, that heaven is modeling itself on. So. I, you know, I, I think of heaven here as the cosmos, or the, you know, the forces, you know, in in space and time that allow things to to come into being. Um, so so heaven is modeled after Tao, and earth is modeled after heaven, and man is modeled after earth. So here you basically have what I would call a pattern within a pattern. You have a you have a relationship here, a, a fractal relationship, where what what man is like is something like what the earth is like. And what the earth is like is something like what heaven is like. And what heaven is like is something like what Tao is like, what God is like. So the idea here is that whatever it is that God is is reflected in the in the material being, in in the cosmos, on the earth and in in our, our own selves. That whatever it is that God is is somehow mirrored or modeled at different levels. The level of the cosmos, the level of the earth, the level of the person, um, and uh, if you take that fractal um, image further, which the mystic experience would, would absolutely tell you to do, that even beyond the person, you imagine that that happens even on smaller and smaller scales, so maybe it's happening, it's happening at the level of my body, at my, my, the level of my organs, the level of my cells, the level of my DNA, molecules, atoms, and so forth, that it goes all the way down, that whatever it is that God is, goes all the way down. And it goes all the way up. Something like that. Okay, so let's keep going. Let's keep exploring. What the heck does Tao mean? Here's the fourth passage from the Tao Te Ching. Tao is a hollow vessel, and its use is inexhaustible, fathomless. Like the fountainhead of all things, its sharp edges rounded off, its tangles untied, its light-tempered, its turmoil submerged, Yet dark, like deep water, it seems to remain. I do not know whose son it is, an image of what existed before God. Whew. Wow. So that's the fourth verse of the Tao Te Ching. A lot packed into that. A lot packed into that. Um, the first bit here about the Tao is a hollow vessel and its use is inexhaustible. This is actually really important in Taoism. It's, it's something uh, that they call the uncarved block. And so you have this uncarved block idea, and it represents potential. It can be carved into something useful, but for now, it's just potential. It just exists as this potential thing. Um, Tao is considered to be like that, like some undifferentiated potential, an uncarved block. And here's the interesting part about it when they talk about it being a hollow vessel, is the idea is that you can carve from this uncarved block a cup or a bowl, let's say. That, that's something you might call a vessel. So you remove from the block all of the, the wood around it that's not being used. And once you once you get this shape of a bowl, even then you're hollowing out the bowl. You're getting rid of more of it. And what you're left with is something that can hold liquid. can hold food. It can hold soup. It can hold something, right? It's useful because it's been emptied. Does that make sense? So it's the the block itself, you might say, is being. When the block is, excuse me, non-being, the, like the thing God is, the uncarved block, when you carve it, it becomes something like being. So it's not potential anymore. It's not an uncarved block anymore. Now it's carved into something specific. And because I've removed all of the block, I've hollowed out all of the block from within it, it becomes useful. So the use of it and the Tao De Ching says it's inexhaustible, it's fathomless. The, use, the usefulness of non-being is what they're pointing to here. They're saying that when you hollow out the vessel, when you remove the block from it, that what you're removing is actually creating what's useful about it. So it's, it's the fact that the block is, doesn't exist anymore that makes it useful. The block has now become this hollow vessel. That's why it's useful. It's the it's the non-being that makes it useful, if that makes sense. So this is something that the, that the Dao De Jing talks about quite a lot. So again, it's talking about this hollow vessel being inexhaustible and fathomless. You know, um, and it says like the fountainhead of all things. So you guys know what a fountainhead is if you if you follow. Uh, fiction and you're a fan of Ayn Rand, you might know that word, the fountainhead. The fountainhead is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, It's the source, the font. It's the source of water. So it's where all the water's coming from. So here it's saying that the Tao is inexhaustible, fathomless. It's like the fountainhead of all things. It's where all things come from. They just bubble out of it, let's say. Uh, That reminds me of the Upanishads talking about being sprouting out of uh, non-being, like a hair sprouting out of your body, something like that. But then it goes on to say some weird stuff here. It says it's sharp edges rounded, it's tangles untied, it's light-tempered, it's turmoil submerged. So this is one of those things that I mentioned before about um, sort of like the opposites being joined. I mean, you've got sharp edges, but they've been rounded off. You've got tangles, but they've been untied. You've got light, but it's been tempered. It's been it's been uh, filtered, let's say, and then you've got tor- turmoil, but it's been submerged, and um, and then it goes and then so this thing about submerged comes up, and then it goes on to say, yet dark like deep water, it it seems to remain. So the words submerged and deep water are related. Uh, both of them um, are associated with the unconscious symbolically. So water, especially deep water, like dark water that you can't see, you know, the bottom of that, that represents the potential, the, the place where everything could come from and being submerged has to do with unconscious is being, you know, it's like you're, you wake up to the light of day when you, and you go to sleep or you get, you know, you, you close your eyes, let's say, and you're submerged back into this water, this unconsciousness, um, so I think there is something here about the opposites you know sharp edges being rounded off we're talking about sort of a, a joining of opposites like I talked about before, and what's the result of that you know what, what when you take something sharp and you get rid of the sharp parts it's not sharp anymore when you when you take something tangled up and you untie it it's not tangled up anymore you don't have tangles anymore so it's like you you do seem to have nothing when you combine opposites but this phrase this phrase is not saying exactly that that they annihilate one another they're not going they're not going away but it says that they're submerged they get submerged back into the unconscious they get submerged back into non-being where they seem to go away Uh, they seem to go away and then it says um but here it says like dark water it seems to remain so it doesn't go away it's still there and then it says, I don't know whose son it is, an image of what existed before God. And this is just one of those questions like, um, you know, uh, you imagine the, the rabbis trying to figure out what is meant by this kind of thing, where um, it, it's the uncreated thing. The Tao existed before heaven and earth. So whose son is it? Who could have given birth to the Tao if the Tao existed before anything existed? That's the point. That's exactly the point. It's what uh, Aristotle calls the unmoved mover, you know, the uncreated creator. This is the beginning of all things. So whose son is it has no son. It's always been here. And then it says an image of what existed before God. And so that's what it's trying to symbolize for you here. The hollow vessel, the inexhaustible, fathomless, fountainhead of all things that existed before God. That's what the Tao is. (sighs) What does that mean? I don't know, but it's really cool. So let's keep going. All right, the seventh verse from the Tao Te Ching says, the universe is everlasting. The reason the universe is everlasting is that it does not live for self. Therefore, it can long endure. Therefore, the sage puts himself last and finds himself in the foremost place. Okay, so that last bit You know, if you know the Bible at all, probably rings a little bit of a bell for you. I'll read that again. It says, The sage puts himself last and finds himself in the foremost place. So there's a phrase in Matthew, it's probably another other uh, gospels but there's a phrase in Matthew in the 20th chapter where Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven which we talked about a little bit in the Christian episode and even in the Upanishads episode he's talking in parables like Jesus does is not straightforward you know he's talking in a confusing ways and he says about the kingdom of heaven so the last shall be first and the first last hmm interesting so the sage puts himself last and finds himself first. And Jesus says, so the last shall be first, and the first last. There's definitely a parallel there. Although I don't think that's the important bit here. Let's, let's go back to the beginning of this phrase here. It says, the universe is everlasting. And it says, the reason the universe is everlasting is that it does not live for self. And this is interesting. And I think it's also connected to the fractal image that we were talking about earlier, the pattern within a pattern is that in the mystic experience, what you see, that pattern that I'm talking about, it's not a static pattern. It's not like the same shape, even though I've described it that way before because it's easy to, easier to imagine. It's like a transforming shape. So what you see when you get these visuals, especially when they're, when they're abstract visuals, is that you, ha- you see a pattern in a pattern, but it's like a changing, morphing thing that's also inside of a changing, morphing thing. That's also inside of another changing, morphing thing. And on and on it goes. So what you, what you see is something that's constantly changing, constantly transforming into something else. That's something that philosophers call becoming. You know, it's, like it's never being. It's never one thing. It's always changing constantly. So the thing that makes the you know, non-being or, or the Tao, the thing that makes that eternal seems to be connected to that it's always transforming it's like the thing that's consistent about it is that it's always changing and when we're we're talking about this from like a fractal perspective um what what you have to imagine is that if 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 the thing that you see in the mystic experience that you understand is God is constantly transforming, and you look around you know your your world and you see that everything around you is always changing the clock is always ticking further and further into the future. Um, You know, things are always wearing and breaking down. Um, The universe continues to, you know, expand further and further apart. Um, You know, atoms are decaying. Uh, I mean, everything is constantly breaking down or being put together or changing and transforming that's happening with your psyche as you grow up, it's happening with your body, as I can tell you, you know, starting to get grayer and grayer and having injuries I'm not used to, getting older, things are always changing. And I think that 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 idea that God is something that's always transforming and that you can see that reflected in the world around you, in the cosmos, and even within yourself, that that is an allusion to the fractal nature of reality. That as God is, so are you. As above, so below. Um, you know, the, the, the Tao is this constantly transforming thing, and so are you. And so is the earth, and so is the cosmos. Uh, somehow we're a reflection of, of Tao going all the way down. I also think that there's something sacrificial about this and I don't I don't have this worked out all the way but I think that when when you have a like just hold an image in your head here of a shape or something abstract and when you when you see that change to something else that it it gives up the shape it used to be to become this new shape okay and you can Imagine that in your own life, you know, as you've changed over the years, you know, maybe you adapted one identity or another. Maybe you sacrificed one part of your life uh, or another. Maybe, you know, it was it happened when you got married. Maybe it happened when you decided to go to school or to graduate when you graduated or um, have kids or you know, start a new profession or whatever it is that you sacrifice some part of yourself in order to become something new, something else, something different. So you see this happening with yourself, just like. Just like the Tao Te Ching is describing it happening with Tao. And again, I, in the mystic experience, the intuition you have is that is that all things are one. All things are, are God. So if you sacrifice yourself to become something else, in some way what you're doing is you're sacrificing yourself to yourself. Does that make sense? Kind of Interesting. It's also an interesting connection to the Bible because you see, you know, the idea of Jesus as being God who sacrifices him, himself for, for the rest of, of humanity, for, for the rest of the world. Um, again, and if you see that image, like the image of Jesus dying on the cross, and you understand what that means, is God sacrificing himself to himself. And you can see that reflected in your own life. And in and in all of the material cosmos around you, this transformation, this self-sacrificial transformation, um, it's something like death and rebirth. Um, I think this is part of the kind of fractal understanding of the mystic experience. It explains why the fractals keep coming up in these experiences, and we can see it here in the Dao De Jing. I don't know what you think about that, but we're gonna keep we're gonna keep going. All right, so the 11th passage in the Dao De Jing says this. 30 spokes unite around the nave. From their not being arises the utility of the wheel. Mold clay into a vessel. From its not being arises the utility of the vessel. Cut out doors and windows in the house. From their not being arises the utility of the house. So this is very much related to the passage I already read and kind of explained that to you about, about the uncarved block and non-being, the value of non-being. So this is another passage that just continues to remind you that there's something valuable about not being. And it's not that it doesn't exist. It's just that um, it's not being um is where it is where its value comes from, and it's not the same thing. Not being is not the same thing as nothing. Um, so so here again, we, we have this idea about the space, the space between the spokes and the wheel is what makes it a wheel, and the space missing in the clay vessel is what makes it usable as as a, as a cup. The doors and windows being cut out of the house is what allows you to use it. Well, it's what allows light to come through. It's what allows you to walk into it. You know, it's what makes it useful. And so this passage is reminding you that non-being is just as important as being. And I think that's the message. Uh, that's the message here. Non-being is something that I would call God. That I think the Dao De Jing would call Dao. But being is the material world. It's you and I. So that there's something equally important about. Non Being about God and about being, about, about the material world. All right, so here's an interesting one coming up. Um, I can't take credit for this uh, because it was actually in the kind of footnotes of the translation that I was reading, but I'll, I'll tell it to you because it's interesting. Um, the passage is the 14th passage from the Dao De Jing, and it, l- it goes like this: "Looked at, but cannot be seen. This is the invisible. Listen to, but cannot be heard. This is the inaudible. Grasped at, but cannot be touched. This is called the intangible. These three elude all of our inquiries, and hence blend and become one. Not by its rising is there light, nor by its sinking is there darkness. Unceasing, continuous, it cannot be defined, and reverts again into the realm of nothingness. Whew, another great one. A lot, a lot packed in here too but what I want to point out is that the words in the first three lines when it says looked at but cannot be seen this is called the invisible so it has this word invisible inaudible and intangible these are the three words that it uses in Chinese those words in this, in ancient Chinese I should say those words are pronounced yi he ve yi he, ve so the note here says that when Christian scholars first started researching the Tao Te Ching, they noticed that these words in Chinese for invisible, inaudible, and intangible sound like Yehovah. Very, very strange. I'm not sure that that's more than a coincidence, but the Christian scholars who first read it were struck by that. Like, you've got these words that are being used to describe God, invisible, inaudible, and intangible. And it just happens that in the language, in the ancient Chinese language, those words are pronounced like Jehovah, so Jehovah or Jesus. So that's an interesting an interesting connection. The other thing that's interesting is that there are three of them, invisible, inaudible, and intangible, just like there are three persons to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you know, Jesus being one of them. So I think that's an interesting, uh, again, another interesting connection to the, to the biblical stories, But I don't think it's exactly what I want to talk about here. Obviously, these characteristics about Tao being invisible, inaudible, and intangible, um, these are just ways of telling you that Tao is not like being. It's it's something like non-being, whatever that means. And partly what that means is that it's not like being. It's not something you can see or hear or touch. So that's what that's telling you. But here it says... That the that these three elude our inquiries. That just means that it's not part of being. That's the that's the, the the reason we would call it non-being. But then it says that they blend to become one. Now that's interesting because that's directly out of the mystic experience. That, you know, being as one is is kind of the revelation of the mystic experience. That's what the kind of intuition is. And here it's saying that these these things that are not like being, that they blend and become one, that they're one thing. That's exactly what the mystic experience tells you. God is one. Then it says, not by its rising is their light, or by its sinking is their darkness. And I hear it's basically telling you is, the thing I'm talking about is Tao. It's not the sun. I'm not talking about the sun or any of the objects in the heavens. And obviously, back in ancient times, you know, there was... People worshipped the stars and the heavens. Uh, people believed that was the realm of God, and that there were constellations, and that their ancestors became stars, and you know all sorts of things they thought about the about the heavens. And this phrase is saying, "Look, Tao da- doesn't rise and bring the light. It doesn't fall and bring the darkness. It's not the same thing as what you see when you look up to the heavens. It's something else." And then here's the here's the crux of it: unceasing, continuous. It cannot be defined. And reverts again to the realm of nothingness. So unceasing and continuous is a reference to it being eternal. You know, it's not it's not created or destroyed. It's it's always there, whatever the Tao is. That it can't be defined because it's non-being, it's everything together. It can't be defined because there's nothing outside of it who can point its its finger at Tao and say that's what it is. It's everything altogether. It's non being. Then it says it reverts again to the realm of nothingness, and I love that. I think that phrase has something to do with the sinking and submerging that we that we talked about earlier. It's that the thing that your consciousness does again. I when I talk about God, I mean that to be something like consciousness, not that I have a well, good understanding of that exactly, but that's just where my, what what my heart tells me. Uh, and when it said when it says that it reverts again to the realm of nothingness, that reminds me of. Again, the earlier passage about sinking back into the waters, into the deep waters, or the unconscious. It's just like you and I laying our head down on the pillow and going to sleep at night. We close our eyes and our consciousness leaves being and goes and participates in non-being. It becomes unconscious. It sinks and disappears into the realm of nothingness, into the unconscious, where everything is together. Man, that is powerful. All right, so we're learning more about the Tao. Um, I don't know if it's starting to come together for you, but it should be. We're getting, we're getting closer. And I think this is the last this is the last one I want to mention uh, before we change gears a little bit. And this is, comes from the 34th verse. And it says this. The great Tao flows everywhere like a flood. The myriad of things derive their life from it, and it does not deny them. When its work is accomplished... It does not take possession. It clothes and feeds the myriad things, yet does not claim them as its own. Being the home of all things, yet claiming not, it may be considered great. Because to the end it does not claim greatness, its greatness is achieved. There you have it. So there's a lot going on here as well. A lot going on here. Let's, Let's pick it apart. So it says the great Tao flows everywhere like a flood. Obviously, we've already seen references before about the Tao being eternal and everywhere, all you know, pervading all things. Like a flood seems to be another reference to the water, uh, the symbol of unconscious that we've talked about, and the submerging idea of into non-being. And then it says the myriad things derive their life from it, and it does not deny them. And I think this passage is connected to one from the Upanishads, but it basically says the myriad things just means all of the many things that exist. And we, we, we already heard the Tao talk, talked about as, as one. So everything melts back into the one. Um, and here we're talking about the myriad things. We're talking about all the different things that exist. So there's a, there's a presumption that all the things that exist come from the one. And it even says that they derive their life from it and that it does not deny them. So the idea that it does not deny them is interesting because it makes me think of kind of Mother Earth. It makes me think of uh non-being in its in its good form, you know, like the great mother. But not not in like the wicked witch type of a form, in the in the benevolent queen type of a form, the good side of non-being. That it's something that gives life freely. It gives of itself freely and infinitely. That that New forms of life and being are always going to continue to emerge from nature. That that that's what nature is. It's the fountainhead, as as the Tao Te Ching said, of all things. It's just giving birth to all of the different, um, you know, d- the different things that can come into being. And when it says it does not deny them, it just seems to be implying that it's it's unending. It's an endless source of new things that can come out of it. And I I I agree with that. I think that's connected to the idea of non-being as, as, kind of. Pure potential, like undifferentiated being, or what the Taoists call the uncarved block. And it's interesting here too because it says, when its work is accomplished, it does not take possession. And this is really interesting, hard to understand, because you have to ask, well, when it says when its work is accomplished, what is its work? And then when it's done, it doesn't take possession. So possession of what? So here, here, you know, this is the way my mind goes. Uh, When its work is accomplished, it does not take possession seems to mean that its work has something to do with creating something. Because obviously an object is what you could take possession of. So, So what Tao is doing is its work is to bring things into being. It's creating things. It's creating being, the place where we exist and you and I, the things in it. But it doesn't take possession of them. And this this seems to mean that, you know, once once you and I come into being, that we don't we don't belong to God, we don't belong to Dao, the thing that created us. We don't we don't we don't belong to nature, that we're independent of nature. Um, and this seems to be something so, some relation to the idea of um, existing both in consciousness and unconsciousness. You know, if we can say that God is something like the unconscious, and I am something like conscious. When I exist in being in my conscious state, I don't belong to God. I exist as God in my own right. I exist as God within God, you know, a being walking around in inside of the cosmos that was created, f- you know, from, from consciousness. I'm consciousness within consciousness, a pattern within a pattern. You know, when I close my eyes and sink back into into the unconscious, you know, whether that be's, means I'm sleeping or, or or even, you know, dying, let's say um, that then I'm, then I become one with, with non-being. Then I become one with God. At no point is the world being owned by or, or taken possession by, by God, by the force that created it. It's allowed to be independent in some way that maybe has something, some connection to free will or something we can talk about there. But, but I just think that's interesting. Um, this idea that it, that it, that it creates things but doesn't take possession of them that that you know that that does seem to be interesting and important and then it basically repeats that thought in the next line when it says it feeds and clothes the myriad things but doesn't claim them as its own and so you can imagine that you know na- that nature provides so that that's a, a phrase that comes to mind that everything uh, that we need we can find around us in the world you know we can find uh, Clothes and weapons and medicine and food and shelter and, um, you know, uh, companionship and purpose and all the things that we need we can find in the world around us in the cosmos. And I think that's what it's saying here, that Tao feeds and clothes all of the things it it creates. It it provides for them, but it doesn't claim them as its own, that they're somehow separate from the oneness. They're somehow separate from the, the Tao considered as a whole. And then it goes on to say that uh, it, that being the home of all things, yet claiming not. So this is again a similar a similar passage. But when it says it, it's the home of all things. It hits a different note. One that I talked about in the uh, Upanishads episode, uh, and I alluded to a minute ago when I said that we're we're beings within being, or we're consciousness within consciousness. And what that indicates is that the world around us is consciousness. So you and me, we're we're conscious. And we're existing inside of consciousness. So again, you could say that differently and say that we're God existing within God or that we're nature existing within nature, something like that. But either either way, we're a pattern within a pattern. And the creator of that pattern is the home of all things. It's the cosmos. It's the place where we exist, according to the Tao Te Ching. And um, the best way of understanding that, I, I mentioned in the Upanishads episode, is when you consider like... The Chinese, one of the ancient Chinese creation myths about the god Pangu. Or um, in the Nordic uh, Scandinavia, they have a god named Ymir. And in India, they have a, bra- a god named Prajapati. And all three of these stories talk about this great primordial god who who created the cosmos out of its body. So its eyes become the sun and the moon. It's, you know, its blood becomes the oceans and rivers. Its bones become the mountains. You know, its hair becomes the, the whatever you get this sort of a story here about God sacrificing itself to create the place where, where being can exist, the place where God, you might say can continue to exist, um, within itself. And so the picture that you get here is that the cosmos, that the world around us, the home of all things, as the Tao Te Ching says, that that is also God. It's also Tao. I love that. I think that's amazing. Okay, let's change gears a little bit here. Um, this is going to be a little bit more complicated, I think, but the Tao Te Ching does a good job, and maybe a better job than what the uh, Upanishads does and explaining like symbolically and poetically um, how this idea of Tao um, results in the world coming to be and you and I coming to be sitting here, you know, having this conversation. So there's a couple passages that go along this route, and I want to talk through them, but I want to warn you that I don't understand them as well as I'd like to, This is one of the areas that I'm still struggling with understanding and a lot of my thoughts surrounding them have, they're still images in my head. They're not like well-flushed out ideas, so I'll do my best. And I'll ease into it. So the first one here says, the Tao never does, yet through it, everything is done. The Tao never does, yet through it, everything is done. So you remember us talking about the Yen earlier as being the passive force. It it doesn't do anything. It's not like Yang. It's not the active force. The Tao is the matrix of being, the feminine principle. It doesn't do anything. But by doing nothing, everything is done. And this is one of those weird, contradictory things that you'll see in Asian philosophy and religion that we talked about with the Upanishads, that they're internally inconsistent statements that are designed to make you think. So the idea here is try to imagine in your head something that never does anything, yet through it, everything is done. There's no obvious answer to what that is, but there's no end to your ability to sit there and churn out possibilities. You know, this idea makes you think. The Tao never does, yet through it, everything is done. What does that mean? So I think that that has to do with with understanding uh, the relationship between God and the world, and the material world, as something, something less like the Bible says, you know, an action that God took when he said, let there be light. Not like that. Something more like a process or a, or a state of being, like whatever it is that Tao is, whatever it is that God is, it generates consciousness and being and material reality It generates it just by being what it is. That it's not that God has to do anything or take an action or exert its will to create things. It's just part of what God is. Something like that. The next phrase here says, the things of this world come from being and being comes from non-being. Well, I mean, I can beat that dead horse if you want, but it's pretty straightforward. Being is the cosmos, the material world. Non- non-being is Tao. And it's saying the material world comes from Tao. All right, gotcha. That's the uncarved block. That's the, the, the disembodied potential. You know, infinite potentiality is what I would call that. All right, so we've got an interesting one coming up. This is going to start kind of the final sequence of me going through, and it's basically talking about how again how the material world emerges uh, from dao how how you know how things got here what the relationship is between god and and you know his creation or the universe you might say and this is not going to be straightforward but I'll I'll do my best here it starts like this this is the second by, by the way the second verse of the dao de jing so one of the earlier ones one of the more important ones and it says when people know beauty is beauty Thus arises ugliness. When people know good is good, thus arises evil. Therefore, being and non-being interdepend in growth. Long and short interdepend in contrast. High and low interdepend in position. Tones and voice interdepend in harmony. Okay, so this is the second verse of the Tao Te Ching. So I don't know what, what you take that to mean, but the first two lines do not go with the rest of the, of the phrase as far as I'm concerned, the rest of the passage. Um, here's my take. When it says, when people know beauty is beauty, thus arises ugliness. And when people know good is good, thus arises evil. What I think this means is that beauty and ugliness are not, not things that exist independently. And good and evil are not things that exist independently. That there are things that exist together, and the moment you recognize beauty, the moment you have the ability to understand what beauty is, um, you automatically, even without trying, create an other, opposite concept. That as soon as you understand beauty, you know the opposite of beauty exists—ugliness. So just by creating beauty or understanding, coming to understand beauty, you also create, and come to understand ugliness. And that in Tao, in God, these ideas are not separate. They're one. That's what the mystic experience tells you. Beauty and ugliness are one. In being, though, they're not. They're separated. And, that, and that's what this is saying, that people, these are, these are the, again, you and I, people who exist not in Tao but in, in the world, in being, that when we know beauty, we also know ugliness, that they go together there's no way of separate this, separating them out. One goes with the other. Same thing with good and evil. This goes back to my uh, story about, you know, trying to lose weight and, and feeling like if I t- remove all of the snacks from the fridge that I, that I shouldn't be eating, that there's really no value in my accomplishment of losing weight because I didn't struggle with anything. I just removed all the struggle and just, you know, fell into this success, you might say. Um, and that, that reminds me of this, is that the moment we know good is good, then evil evil arises. So, you know, for me, I had to keep the evil around. I had to keep the snack packs in the fridge so that I knew that my actions to not eat them were good, let's say. That's what this is saying. That the moment you create good or come to understand good, that you automatically, instinctively also have created evil and understand evil because it's the opposite and then the rest of this passage just goes on to say being and non-being interdepend. Long and short interdepend. High and low interdepend. So what it's telling you is beauty and ugliness interdepend. Good and evil interdepend. That there is no way of having one without the other. That we're talking about um, a continuum. We're talking about something that we're using two different words to describe the same thing. And this goes back to the oneness Understanding Tao or God as as a whole, as oneness, as the as the Ouroboros, snake eating its tail, the circle, the Yin and the Yang together, that sort of a thing. But being, you know, the world that gets created from Tao is something is something different. You know, we know that these that these opposites interdepend, but in being, they're not they're not understood as one thing anymore. They're understood as being separated somehow, separated from the one. So let's read the next passage, because it goes along with this. This is much deeper, by the way, into the Tao Te Ching, but it goes on like this. Out of Tao, one is born. Out of one, two. Out of two, three. Out of three, the created universe. The created universe carries the yin at its back, and the yang in front. Through the union of the pervading principle, it reaches harmony. Okay. So when we were talking in the prior verse about uh, beauty arising from ugliness and how all of these opposites interdepend on one another, we're basically saying that all of these many things are really just one thing. And that's what the mystic experience tells you. So let's, let's move forward. This passage says, out of Tao, one is born. So... The one thing from which all of you know being uh, can get kind of kind of get emerged from or get divided from, that that comes from Tao, and then it just uses this symbolic f- phrase by saying, out of one, two, out of two, three, you know. So once you have one, then then more things can be born from it, and the more things you have, the more combinations you have to create even more, and so that that's why when, when we get to three, it says out of three comes the whole created universe. And you might imagine that scientifically as something like, you know, um, whatever the force whatever the force is, and we don't, we don't exactly know, by the way, scientifically what that is, whatever the force is that energy could emerge from, that that thing is there, and then energy emerges from it, now there's two things, and then matter emerges from energy, and now there's three things, and from those combinations of matter and energy come all of the things that exist in the cosmos. Something like that. So this is what we're talking about. And when it says the created universe carries yin at its back, remember yin is chaos or non-being. It's the it's the thing that that all material reality can 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 come from. So the created universe carries yin at its back. You can kind of imagine that like a jetpack strapped on your back. It's it's constantly uh, you know spewing out more of the created universe, more things in being. And at its front is order; it's it's Yang at its front. So the part that you see, the part that you encounter, the vanguard, the part at the front of the snake, the head of the snake, that this is being. This is the this is uh, the universe, and that all the rest of the of the tail, you know, going back uh, behind the snake's head, this is all of the, this is all of that immaterial, you know, um, potentiality that just continues to to create more snake, something like that. And it says through the union of the pervading principles it reaches harmony, and so there is always uh again an an, um, an emphasis placed on harmony as a as a it's not again it's not just being or non being it's not just yin or yang but a combination of them it's not just consciousness but also unconsciousness and that there is a importance to having harmony and maybe that's what maybe that's what um you know the the cosmos is that it's this force that stabilizes and makes allows things to be is this balance between those forces this harmony i'm also struck with the idea that harmony uh you know is also a musical phrase so um there's a lot that Kyle and i talked about in terms of um these uh kind of symbolic understanding of uh of god from the mystic experience and also um this t- talking a lot about music in that way that the patterns within patterns that that's something that also seems musical and we're using the word harmony here so there does seem to be also a uh, connection to music that I wish I I wish I understood better and we'll have to have to dive into that in the future all right so here we're we're getting into the kind of the the home stretch here here's the very first passage from the dao de jing the very first one maybe the most important So we're trying to understand the Tao. We've got this far. And here's what the first passage says. The Tao that can be told of is not the absolute Tao. The names that can be given are not the absolute names. The nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of all things. Okay, so there's a little bit more here, but I want to stop with that passage. Um, this is interesting. It reminds me a lot of what we saw in the Upanishads, um, and I made those connections when I did that episode. But I'll, I'll make a couple others here. So here, when it says the Tao that can be told of is not the absolute Tao, so this is that this is that explanation I gave you earlier, where I, I mentioned that a Taoist will say that when you when you try to explain Tao to somebody, that you can't tell somebody what Tao is. First of all, it's not something you can teach them exactly. And even giving it a word and calling it Tao so that you can talk about it or whatever word you want to use to talk about it. You know, even the, um, you know, the ancient Hebrews wouldn't use the name of God, Yahweh or Yahweh or whatever whatever it is. They wouldn't even speak it. Um, and and that's what this is saying is the Tao cannot be told of. Um, and the, uh, Upanishads, you get that phrase, I don't know if you guys remember the quote, but it says, the Atman cannot be attained by the study of the scriptures, nor by much hearing. And here we have the Tao Te Ching saying the Tao cannot be told of. So this is, this is, what, I, this is what I mean. It's, it's something that uh, can only be understood through an experience, through, through a mystic experience. Um, and then it says the names that can be given are not the absolute names which seems to have to me it has something to do with the things that are nameable you know like like Adam naming all the all the uh, animals in the garden of eden the things that are nameable are are objects that exist in the world they're the things that occupy being um, and those things he says are not the absolute names those aren't those things you see in being are not Tao. They're not exactly the same thing as as God, but but something like that. There's something. There's something. Some connection between the cosmos, that you know, what Tao is created, and Tao itself. But you're not going to say that they're synonymous with, with one another. It's not the absolute Tao, and these aren't the absolute names. Uh, what that brings to my mind is um, uh, something I tried to explain a, a bit before about the mystic experience that I had, um, kind of bringing bringing this idea to my mind that um that consciousness uh, again that's what i what i'll imagine god to be deep down that consciousness is all there is it's the one thing that the mystic experience tells you it is so when consciousness uh, experiences itself you know and that's all all consciousness does is experience things and if it's all all there is to experience guess what Consciousness is going to experience consciousness, so that's something that I would call self-consciousness. And when that happens, um, all of material reality comes into being from that from that process. So this is something that I that I understood through the mystic experience, and that's what's ringing true here. It's like God represents, or consciousness represents itself. It projects that representation just like, just like we do psychologically. We project representations of things so that we can experience and encounter things. It's, it's the sort of the psychological part of our existence, uh, our inner world, you might say. And when God projects within it himself a projection of consciousness, of himself, that is what God is experiencing. It's not, it's not directly experiencing itself. It's experiencing a representation of itself, and this is what I hear when I read: the Tao that can be told of is not the absolute Tao; the names that can be given are not the absolute names. So, what that's telling me is um, what that what that seems to be telling me is that uh, um, that that the world is a representation of God, and that you can learn something about God from its representations. Uh, but it's not the it's not the represent it's not God itself. It's only a representation. So there is there is a gap. There is some sort of a gap that's hard to define between God and man that makes us not the same exactly, um, but as close as, as close to to that idea as, as possible. So something like that. And then it says the nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. So that's just saying you know the Tao uh, is the reason that heaven and earth exist. And then it says, the named is the mother of all things. And that's just again saying that being, you know, once heaven and earth got here, once being was here from Tao, that uh, all the other things came from that. And of course we know that. We know that happened. Uh, we know that, um, you know, the the cosmos cooled and uh, gravity settled things down and the planets formed and the um, you know, the waters uh, condensed and uh, the earth uh, had oceans and the you know the chemicals and molecules in the oceans eventually organized and became uh, life, and life became us. And we know we know that happened. And this is what uh, this is exactly what the Tao Te Ching is telling you. Once heaven and earth got here, um, everything else flowed from that, and that's what we see. All right, so there's one more phrase or one more passage here to the verse It says. Therefore, one strips oneself of passion in order to see the secret of life. One regards life with passion in order to see its manifest forms. These two are the same. They are given different names when they become manifest. And then it ends by saying, They may both be called the cosmic mystery, reaching from the mystery into the deeper mystery. It is the gate to the secret of all life man. That's one way to open up a holy book. Um, so this, the, the, where we start here is a little bit confusing, but I want to tell you what I think it means. It says that one strips himself of passion in order to see the secret of life. And then it says one regards life with passion in order to see its manifest forms. So the idea here is that there's something to do with passion, that if you can remove it that you will see, a lot, you will see the secret of life. You will see the universe laid bare. You'll see some truth that you don't ordinarily see. And then it says, if you if you can kind of um, insert that passion back in, if you can experience through the lens of that passion, whatever that means, that you will see its manifest forms. So here's what I think that means. I think that passion has to do with living. You know, it's, it brings to mind things like, you know, emotions and, um, um, strong emotions, you might say, um, attraction, um, you know, it, it, brings to mind things that are, that are important about connecting you, uh, your inner world to the outer world. So, you know, what things that you're passionate about, the things that you encounter that make you passionate, um, the things that you want to express in the world because of your passion, you know, grabbing your woman and kissing her hard on the mouth, or whatever it is, that passion is, is something that connects you to uh, your inner world, to the outer world, let's say. And if you can strip that away, the Tao Te Ching says that you will see the secret of life. And what that reminds me of is kind of like the scientific worldview. You know, if we can separate all the human stuff away from the material stuff and we can get down to brass tacks that will understand some deeper secret about you know, the reality. Well, we know that's true. I mean science has absolutely done that. It's taken the passion away from the experience of of, you know, uh, the 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 reality of of the world. And it's uh it's it's given us all this insight into Um, what makes things tick and all the technology we've been able to generate from that. So there's, there's part of it there. The other part of it, I think is, um, that when you remove the human part, when you remove the passions, when you remove the part that connects your internal world, uh, to the external world, that what you're left with is the external world. What you're left with is the matrix of being the thing that exists behind human perception, uh, that's, again, the, 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 the yin, that's um, non-being, that's God. So if you strip passion out of your experience, if you strip the humanity out of it, that you, what you're left with is some glimpse into the secrets of God, whatever they may, that may be. And instead, if you put that lens back up and you look at the world as you experience it, and everything connected to your emotions and your passions in the, that, again, connect your external world to your internal world, that you will see its many manifestations. And to me, that's just a way of talking about our lived experience. It's our way of talking about being. That if we look at God, if we look at consciousness without passion, that what we see, what we see is this um, laid bare, we see this matrix of being, the chaos. We see the, the non-being that all life comes from. There's not, there's, there's not much you can say about that or know about that. It's just this mysterious, awe-inspiring force that you intuit, that you know in your heart of hearts is, is, is behind the world and, by, and behind yourself. Uh, but it's not something you can experience. It's the unconscious. It's outside of you somehow. And if you put yourself back inside of it, what you're going to see is being. You're going to live the life you're living you're gonna you're going you're gonna see the cosmos and space and time and the people that you that you interact with and all of the emotions and the uh in the in the living that comes from that. So I think this is a way of making a connection between uh being and non-being and talking about them as being the same. And it and it explicitly says it. It says these two are the same. The secret and its manifestation are the same. God and and creation. The material world are the same. They're given different names when they become manifest. That's what it says. So you've got this thing. If we, if we can connect this to the, the passages that we read before about the Tao being one and one being two and two being three, how when you recognize beauty then you create ugliness, that these ideas are all connected. That what you start with is God. You start with the one. And as you separate from God, different things as you separate them from God. And I would say that this is God projecting its own representation, that when you do that, you've now created two, three, four, and the infinite myriad of things. That's material reality. That's being, the place where we live, the place the place where uh, we exist and ourselves. The Tao Te Ching says these two are the same. The Upanishad said the same thing. You remember that? You remember the Upanishad said, this Atman is Brahman. This, this, you know, the thing that I am is God. And then it closes by saying, they may both be called the cosmic mystery. Both God and, and, and the material world can be called the cosmic mystery because they're one. And it says, reaching from mystery into the deeper mystery is the gate of the secret of all life. And I can't help I can't help but remember with, when I read this last line: the mystic experience and the fractal, the fractal um, reality. When it says reaching from the mystery into the deeper mystery, I can picture the pattern, the transforming pattern. And when I look at it, I can see within it a tr- the same transforming pattern. And within that, I can see it's made up of yet yet more. Of the same transforming patterns, I'm reaching into the mystery and seeing the deeper and deeper mysteries that lay there. And once I understand that, it just continues on and on and on without end. The Tao Te Ching says that you realize that that's the gate to the secret of life. And you know what's interesting about that, guys, is that the fractal. When you when you have that fractal experience, and that in that mystical experience, and you see that. Um, again, pattern within a pattern that's changing and evolving and constantly moving, it does look to you like it's alive. Even though it's a pattern, and you can see it's, it's, it's something abstract, it does seem to be alive. And what I mean is that the patterns that are moving and morphing and transforming within it, you can see them. You can see the motion and the, and the change happening within the pattern, and you can see how it changes the pattern itself itself it seems to be animated by the fractal. It seems to be alive because of it. And so I think that's what's meant here by the gate to the secret of life, that once you understand this fractal nature of reality and that you understand, you know, as above, so below, that you exist as God within itself, as just another fractal mirror of of Tao in this sense, that once you know that, that maybe you know something about the secret of life—what caused life to emerge from the primordial oceans? That you know, what, that Frankenstein spark of electricity that shot down and hit the ocean and caused you know uh, things that aren't alive to suddenly be alive. Um, that whatever that is, that, that has something to do with the fractal nature of God. I got two more. All right, so there's one. There's one that talks about day, and I mentioned day before. That's um, a way for them to talk about, uh, a way for the Taoists to talk about material reality. So there's Tao, God, and then there's day, which is material reality, manifestations of Tao or embodiments of Tao is how they would call that. Um, And I would call that maybe a representation of Tao, a representation of God. It goes like this. Day follows alone from the Tao. The thing that is called Tao is elusive, evasive. Yet latent in it are forms, elusive, evasive; yet latent in it are objects, dark and dim; yet latent in it are life forces. The life force being very true, latent in it are evidences. From the days of old till now, its named have never been have, uh, excuse me, its named have never ceased by which we may view the father of all things. How do I know the shape of the father of all things? through these. And that's how it wraps. Right, there's a bunch here too, but let's let's tear it up. It says, day follows alone from the Tao. And what that means is that ma- the material world, being, it, it comes from the Tao, but it alone comes from the Tao. So nothing else comes from Tao. What comes from Tao is the material world and consciousness. So day alone follows from Tao. Then it says... The thing that is called Tao is elusive, evasive, and we kind of talked about that already. It's this thing that, um, again, it's to be understood as all things together, as this, when you put all things together, what you have is this infinite font of potential from which anything can emerge. That's the idea of God in some like the most abstract possible way. So when it says it's elusive, evasive, it means that God is all things, all, all at once, all together, and there's nothing outside of it. So it's unknowable, which is why we call it non-being. It's not like being. It's not knowable. So Dao, the Tao De Jing says that it's elusive, evasive. You can't pin it down. And I think that's what it means. In spite of that, it says latent in it are forms and objects. So in this formless, you know, nothingness that we call non-being, that we call Tao, from that are all of the possible forms and things that could possibly ever be. That they're there latent within it. Even the force of life itself, the thing that causes things to to breathe and you know and be alive, even that thing is there, hidden inside, inside the 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 Tao. It also says latent in it are evidences. I think that's really interesting. Um, because basically what, what that's saying is that when you understand what what your reality actually is. You'll have all the evidence you need that Tao exists because you will understand yourself to be the Tao, and when you know that, you can't, you can no longer deny it. So when you understand that you're that you're God, you can no longer de- deny that God exists. Something like that. All right. So then, this last bit here it goes on to say, from the days of old until now, so from the from the beginning of time until now, its named have never ceased. And that means it's manifested forms, being. So it's basically saying that Tao has always created, some, it has whatever. it's hard to put words to, but whatever Tao is, um, it has always been manifested as reality, as as being, as a cosmos. It's never ceased. Um, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a Big Bang, or it doesn't mean that there, was, that there isn't multiple Big Bangs, or the universe, the cosmos might exist in all the ways that, you know, the various ways that, Scientific theories suggest that maybe it does. All of that could be true. All of that could also be true. Um, as long as you accept the idea that it's eternal. There was never a time when there wasn't being. There was never a time when there wasn't Tao. And it says, by which we may view the Father of all things. So it's saying that the manifested forms of Tao, that the the world around us, the cosmos and all the material things that we experience and the people we experience, that by those things we can view the Father of all things. So what it's saying here is somehow we can know something about Tao, about God, by all of the things that exist in being. And this makes perfect sense, you know, when you consider, like I said, if consciousness is all there is, and consciousness projects within itself a representation of itself. So you can kind of picture like a, you know, you can imagine uh, maybe even the picture that's on the front of our podcast uh, our podcast logo. You've got this eye, and this uh, inside of that eye is this face, and inside of the face is a reflection of the same face. So I kind of look at it that way, that you've got God within God. So this is, this is the, the fractal image that I want to bring to your, bring to your mind. Um, so the idea here is if, if I suppose I can't know um, that larger face, can never know it, but I can know the reflection of it inside the smaller face, I can know that whatever I can know about that smaller face, and in, in the analogy here is being, whatever I can know about the world around me is going to tell me something about that larger face about God, because they're just reflections of one another. They're just representations of one another. So it's it's not like I'm going to know God directly somehow by studying the cosmos. But I will know more and more about his, its self-representation. And isn't that just as good somehow? It's better than nothing. It gives me some information to go on about God. It also allows me to kind of bounce the, that those thoughts off of the mystic experience and the intuitions I had from the mystic experience to try to figure out if I agree with it. And I I agree with this, guys. I think this is this is entirely consistent with the mystic experience. Um and I, and I think that this idea here that we can look at being and tell from being um what uh God is like that that's something like um it's something like staring at a painting, and I've got one next to me here, an Alex Gray painting. I can stare at this painting, and, and I can know something about Alex Gray, even though I've never met him. I can know something about him by looking at this painting. Now, some people would disagree with me. Maybe I can't know anything about Alex Gray, but, I'd, but I would argue differently. I'm looking at this painting right now. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's called Dying. Um, and it's a, it's a painting of a man laying on, uh, on a bed, uh, presumably his deathbed. He's laying on a pillow, hands resting up on his chest. You can see, uh, his eyes are closed, his mouth is open. He seems to be sort of sighing and he looks very peaceful. And you can see this ethereal spiraling mist coming out of his, uh, his head and going up into heaven, presumably into this bright light. And you can see all these eyeballs all around, uh, all around him, kind of um, disembodied eyeballs in space that are looking at him that are representing consciousness. Um, it's a very beautiful painting. Um, you guys should look it up. It's called Dying. But the thing is, I can know something about Alex Gray from this painting. And maybe I'm presuming, I think Alex would agree, that I can know from this painting that Alex Gray has had the mystic experience that he understands that there's a connection between consciousness and the thing that makes us alive. The fact that we have all of these disembodied eyeballs that are witnessing the spirit leaving this dead, dead person and going back up into the light, which seems to be, um, the light itself seems to be generating these eyeballs. You can see that Alex Gray believes that consciousness is eternal and that it leaves the body and, and, and exists in this disembodied way. You might say non-being. So I, I I understand that Alex Gray has an understanding of that, of this connection between being and non-being, between God and man, and that he understands more that that's consciousness. The same as I do from, from having a mystic experience. He believes that, and I can tell that by looking at this painting. I can tell more about Alex Gray than that, but I can tell all of that. So if you're one of those people that says, you can't look around at, at the world and, and the cosmos and deduce uh, from it um, anything about God. I would say you're very, very wrong. All right. All right, moving on. Uh, this will be the last one here, and I think this will bring it all full circle to you. And this is towards the end of the, Upanish- or the um, Dao De Ching. It's uh, verse 47, and it says this. Stepping outside one's door, one can know what is happening... Uh, I'll, start, I'll start back. I, I butchered that in the beginning. Without stepping outside one's door, one can know what is happening in the world. Without looking out one's window, one can see the Tao of heaven. What do you think about that one? Without stepping outside one's door, one can know what's happening in the world. Without looking out your window... One can see the Tao. So, to me, this is finally, this is at long last, the Tao Te Ching going through all of this um, sort of poetic explanation, trying to say what can't be said, trying to put words to the un, you know, uh, speakable, uh, and describe what God is. Finally, they're coming around to saying that whatever Tao is is the same thing as consciousness. Now, the Upanishads did this too, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but I want, to, but I just want to emphasize, when this says to you that without stepping out your door that you can know what's happening in the world, what that seems to be saying is you don't have to leave your house to know what being is and to know that there are other creatures like you that are, have all of the same thoughts and impulses and instincts and desires and values and and, you know, hardships and dreams and fears, that all of that stuff exists within you, the same as it does outside of you in the world. And that all you have to do is know yourself. Once you know yourself, then you know all you need to know about the rest of, of, of the cosmos. Um, what does that mean? Well, if all you know is yourself, if you've got no knowledge uh, that's available to you. Nothing outside of outside of your your door. Only what you have there at at, at immediate uh, immediately accessible to you. Yourself. That's consciousness, and you can know everything you need to know about the world around you from understanding your own consciousness. And then he he adds to this by saying, without looking out your window, you can see the Tao. Whew. Well, we already know the Tao is not something that that you can see. We we called it invisible and inaudible earlier. So what does that mean? Well, it kind of means something like Luke, Luke says in the Bible, Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Or the Gospel of Thomas that says, The kingdom is inside of you and it is outside of you. Right from the Bible, you see, you see that. And I think this is exactly what this is saying. Without looking out your window, you can see God. You can see the Tao of heaven. Well, How could that, how could that possibly be? Because God is consciousness, and you are consciousness. You do not have to look anywhere but inside of you to see Tao, to see God, to experience the thing that caused material reality to, to to emerge. That's the thing that you are. And the Tao Te Ching went a long way trying to explain this before it says, in this very oblique way, you don't have to leave your house. You don't have to look outside of yourself. To understand God And everything that comes from God And the Upanishads Again uh, Says similar things It says This Atman Is hidden in experience And residing in the body You know, the Atman is the soul uh, the, the personal soul that, that is really nothing more than God According to the Upanishads So God is hidden in experience And residing in the body That's consciousness, buddy that's what that is. It also says that this Atman is Brahman. This, you know, I am God. That's what the Upanishad says. And of course, my own quote from the mystic experience that I wrote down and have told you many times, that I'll tell you again, uh, the word, the very first words that came out of my head when I had a mystic experience for the first time was, the consciousness that I am is in every atom that makes up the cosmos. That was the f- very first words that uttered out of my mouth when I had that experience. So this is interesting. I mean, what, what we have here is not only this, this long description, this very poetic description, maybe beating around the bush a little bit here, but on purpose, to get you to think outside of your ordinary, you know, uh, thought patterns, to be able to understand something unusual, that you are the same as God. And the same as all the things around you that you experience to be different from you. That you're not. You're actually all the same. You're all one. In order for you to get there, you really have to kind of loosen up. You got to stretch those those mental muscles, man. You, uh, and I think that's what the, um, uh, the kind of poetic verse type of thing and the contrary statements that are on purpose that we've been reading are designed to do. They're designed to shake that up and to allow you to think flexibly so that you can realize the truth, which is something that seems absurd, like we talked about in the beginning. A pattern within a pattern. So perhaps the study of self, you know, psychology, philosophy, that kind of thing, perhaps that is just as good, if not better, a means of having knowledge about God than the scientific approach and maybe that's what this is saying, or or maybe that they're maybe that they're equal endeavors. You know, you might be the kind of person that removes the passion and tries to examine the cosmos um, scientifically, and you're you're going to try to figure out what makes up non-being, or you're going to put that passion back in. You're going to live your life. You're gonna you're going to experience the world through. Uh, this representation of nature that you are. You're going to experience nature through this representation of nature that you are. Maybe you're going to go that route. You're going to experience, like the phenomenologist and the existentialist, you're going to experience the world and come up with knowledge about 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 God that way. Um, one or the other, and maybe they're equal. I think they are. So this reminds me of... Um, Something I referenced earlier—it's a, a phrase in Greek, but uh, I don't know the Greek, so I'm going to give it to you in English. Know thyself. Know thyself—that that is a phrase that's carved in the entrance to the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. In ancient Greece, where when people went to the Oracle of Delphi to have their, to 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 have their you know futures told to them, or to have a mystic experience, um, and there's been all sorts of things talked about. I, I think one of the uh, one of the um, research uh, avenues about the Temple of Delphi was that there's some sort of a fissure under the temple that was that was allowing this gas from like deep in the earth to kind of trickle up into the temple, and that the um, and that the uh, the priestess would go into the back room and she would uh, you know breathe in these these fumes or whatever and she would she would have a hallucination she would trip, and in these experiences she would uh, be able to access uh, you know the secrets of um, uh, you know, the supernatural world and she could bring bring people's prophecies and, and she could, you know, answer their questions and all that sort of thing, that people would come all over the world to Delphi to have the priestess tell them these things or to have a mystic experience. And, uh, you know, I don't know, again, if, if it's if it's likely that these mystic experiences there were drug-related, it, it, it seems like it's a possibility. But in, in any case, it still rings true to what the mystic experience tells you. And what the Temple of Apollo is telling every person who walks in those doors is that you have to know yourself. And if you're there looking for a mystic experience or a spiritual experience, you're going there in order to, in order to have some connection with God. And what is the, what is the uh, priestess of Delphi telling you if you want to have an experience of God? Know thyself. Know thyself. So maybe the study, you know, of the material basis of reality, maybe that is studying the art, like this Alex Gray painting over here. And the study of the self is more like the study of the artist, the Tao and the day, as, we, as we've said. The Tao is day. Atman is Brahman. We are God. Now what are you going to do with that fact?